Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 40. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we're going to be venturing off into some unexplored territory. We're actually going to be talking about life. Life! Which is obviously a very broad <laughs> topic and a very broad idea. To explain some of what we're going to try and do, this episode is actually one of a pair, the other of which, which will be uploaded next week, is going to be on death. So I approached Caroline about these ideas several weeks back at this point. We're currently recording on April 10th, and this will probably be released sometime in the middle of the summer, but I was discussing it with Caroline in the middle of March, and we actually reached out to a number of people and sought their opinions and their descriptions and ideas because we wanted this to be more of a discussion than simply a dialogue between Caroline and myself, who obviously have limited knowledge and very specific knowledge on certain topics. So the first thing I thought of was asking a lot of biologists what they thought about life. And so we will definitely get into some or of the... biology majors. Exactly. Not biologists. But also some graduates. Yeah, Who have of graduated now, and I consider in some ways biologists, but I totally hear what you're saying. And so that was one avenue that I went down. But I also wanted to think about why this was important for me and what it meant for me to discuss life. So I'm going to start actually with a brief anecdote that happened recently to me and makes me think a lot about life. So the other day I was in the bathroom washing my hands, getting ready to go to dinner. And I looked down and there was either a millipede or a centipede on the floor, just crawling around. And I feel like most people in that situation would get very grossed out and bothered. And for some reason, that's never really been my response to that. I'm not a huge fan of bugs, but at the same time, I think it's important to recognize just how intricate they can be. And so I looked down at this thing that's far away from my person. It's no threat to me, and I didn't feel terribly scared. I'm much bigger than it. Looked down and saw just the legs moving in tandem and just how methodically it was moving. And I think for all our hubris as humans, which I will touch on a lot in this episode, episode, we forget how amazing other organisms are and just how, like I've already said, intricate they can be. And I'm looking down at this very, very tiny thing and it's moving so beautifully in a lot of ways. And then I think to people who claim a lot of superiority over other beings and you go to a dance floor and there's so many people moving awkwardly, myself <laughs> included. So don't get me started on other animals and, you know, insects and other creatures being able to move quite well. But at the same time, I mean, there's this centipede on the ground and it's, you know, all its legs are synchronized and it's moving, it's moving in this beautiful, like, snake-like way, probably. And it's like, we do the same thing. Like, I'm moving my arms right now. And it's like, right. am I thinking about moving my arms? Like, everything is working in such an interesting, cohesive way. Mm -hmm. In that way, we're no different from, like, a centipede. Or, Absolutely. Like, I completely cool. agree. And one thing that struck me that I'm not sure any of the biologists or biology majors that we talked to touched upon is the idea that we all come from a universal common ancestor, the first form of life. And a lot of them talked about evolution and how we've progressed down the scale over millions of years, yeah. which is incredible, billions even. But not many of them talked about the fact that originally there was one chemical that managed to replicate itself. And over a long, long period of time, that spread and became various, various forms of life. But to conclude the <laughs> anecdote about the centipede or the millipede, whichever it was, I didn't want it in the bathroom because I do think we have that <laughs> tendency to sort of get other creatures out of our way. And so I scooped it up in a piece of paper. And I thought you were going to say you squashed it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Get out of here. Um, which I'll get back to, actually, that idea of you know killing insects. I scooped it up 
and a piece of paper, and it formed this perfect spiral coil as a defense mechanism, which amazes me because I think, okay, well, people, when threatened, often sort of curl up in a ball to try and make themselves smaller and harder to hit, and I feel like that's not a ridiculous behavior, and that's something that we frankly share. In fact, the fetal position, as it's called, is true of a lot of other fetuses before they've been Mm -hmm. born. Chickens, other animals, they all sort of form that curled up shape with their arm structures and leg structures just curling towards one another in the womb or in the egg, whichever it happens to be. That's further proof that we do share a lot of qualities. We've evolved from the same thing, yeah. Exactly. So I scooped it up and then I went and put it outside. And it was just really interesting to me, especially because we'd been planning to have this discussion. I think it was just a nice reminder that life is everywhere. And we always complain as people when we see ants in our food or seagulls grabbing our stuff on the beach, but it's because life has proliferated like crazy. So that's that anecdote. I'm sure I will have other things to say. What did you first think of when I brought this to you? And when someone says, Caroline, how would you define life? Obviously, it's a very broad question, but where would you start? It's interesting. I think part of why for me when I think of life I don't think immediately of biology Mm -hmm. is partially because I'm not a biology major and I'm an anthropology major so I'm thinking more of like the social side of things maybe but also I think it's because I'm young I'm not thinking about my mortality I'm you know like having been a high schooler and having grown up with a brother who was pretty fond of drunk driving and he's not now but I mean he thought he was pretty good at it at the time I think that was the first time in my life where I'd been confronted with the idea that maybe we aren't immortal and like this kind of mortality but because we're so young and we're not thinking about our mortality essentially and i think there are studies that prove this no one thinks they're gonna be the ones who randomly die in a car crash no one thinks of themselves as the person who's gonna die in a plane crash or a terrorist attack or something like that everyone thinks that they're going to be the one who lives till the oldest that they can till they're 95 and in a bed and they'll die and it'll be peaceful no one thinks of the disaster happening to them especially me that's hard to fathom because you live cautiously or and if you don't like it's just not something you think about happening to you and so that initially is that's as close as to the biological sense of life I can kind of come to when I first think of it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Of that, that makes sense. I think when you're talking about youth and the idea of mortality, one, to our audience, we are going to touch a lot on yeah. mortality and death yeah, in the next are. episode. But it's obviously central to life. Life itself is defined by birth to death. You are alive for a period of time, and then eventually you are no longer alive. I think it's really interesting to think about the different longevity of different species, there are certain fruit flies that live a day, probably less. So from birth to their death, they've lived a fraction of a fraction of our lifetime. Or I mean, like when a bee stings someone and they lose their stinger, then they die. Isn't mm-hmm. and I don't think they even know it, or maybe they not sting. People, well, see, that's you know? the thing. I wonder. We always talk about intelligence as there's life and then there's intelligent life. And I suspect bees don't know, but I also think the dedication they have to the hive is so central to how they survive. And obviously as a species, they've done pretty well. And I think it's a lesson, which leads me to a brief tangent, actually. One of my favorite things about life is not only that there are people, millions and billions of people to learn from and spend time with, but nature, however small or large, you know, dogs, birds, any kind of creature can teach a certain lesson. We have terms in our language for 
hawk-eyed people, for example, or busy bees, because we understand that nature has certain qualities that are admirable and that all life could benefit from. And religious, I think. Absolutely. Personally, for me, I'm not a religious person. At least I don't correspond to an organized religion. But at the sight of something so majestic, like a tree or a mountain, this is kind of Rudolf Otto's theory of the numinous if anyone's familiar with that, I don't want to sound too pretentious here, but that awe-inspiring religious experience, that feeling of being absolutely in awe of nature and trees and something that, I guess especially for me, because I'm not educated in biology or at least not beyond the ninth grade level, I see these things and that's life for me and that's something that I can't fully understand. I mean, when we approached people about this, some of the responses we got were like, oh, I asked my mom about this and she kind of gave me a convoluted answer because, I mean, it's a big question. Mm -hmm. And I think a lack of understanding of it for me is what makes me kind of idealize life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And certainly it's rough at certain points. I don't want to act like life is always peachy, I think, for plenty of species that are often prey. Let's say gazelle in the grasslands of Africa. They're hunted daily by lions and presumably other predators as well. And so they have a rough existence. But at the same time, I do think the food chain is a very interesting thing in that most creatures eat something smaller than them or something along those lines. Even creatures that eat plants are still eating life. To me, that's one of the most interesting things that we as humans can choose to be either omnivores or carnivores. Mm -hmm. There are obviously people that are vegetarians and they're herbivores. Although vegetables and other plants are alive, we don't consider them in the same category as animals because they don't look like us or act like us. And I know that I talked about some of this in a previous episode on deforestation, but you look around at life and it is literally everywhere. I would challenge everyone listening, wherever you are, if you're in a car or sitting down somewhere or walking, just look around. You won't be able to count the number of things that are alive in your field of vision. And there are obviously things you can't see for the germaphobes out there, I'm sorry, but bacteria are everywhere. There's just things that are alive on everything. And I think we as people, maybe just Western people typically, tend to fear a lot of the things that we can't see, the small little organisms, but they help us. A lot yeah. of the bacteria on our skin are essential for life and help us fight disease and exactly. process other things. I mean, if we're talking about disease, I mean, a flu here in Ohio is going to be different from a flu down in Texas. If there's a flu going around and you go visit Texas and you bring that flu back to Ohio, chances are it's going to spread a lot faster because we don't have the right. antibodies that people in Texas have. Right. And antibodies alone then makes me think, okay, the immune system's crazy. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> and the fact that we have this thing inside of us that acts like a police force to simplify it to a gross degree. And I think it's an incredible police force that memorizes the identities of certain diseases so that if you get it in childhood, your body, and I know I'm simplifying this and there are biologists out there that are scoffing at me, but your body makes the antibody and keeps that coated somewhere so that if you ever see that virus or that strain of the illness again, your body fights it immediately. But even those diseases that develop resistance or like, you know, they evolve as well exactly. to get in your body. And I'm definitely simplifying as well. Try a different way. I mean, every, everything's evolving constantly. Mm -hmm. Everything's adapting. Right. We as people tend to be afraid of those things because... Let's be honest, our survival does hinge upon other things not surviving. When we brush our teeth, you're killing bacteria. That's what you're doing. You're also strengthening the enamel and such on the outside of your teeth, but you're getting rid of things that would otherwise hurt you. And I'm not necessarily saying that you can't kill anything because, frankly, life does involve the death of other things. When we eat food, at some point it's going to die. Even if you eat a live organism, it's going to die inside of your stomach. 
And I hate thinking about that. <laughs> I hear you. No, and I don't get me wrong. I don't think I would ever eat something that's alive because it's a weird feeling. But well, you think about like a lobster. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. cook it alive, right? And then it's fresh. You know, you want it right. to be fresh. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of weird. Think about how yeah. you eat things, which is interesting too, because we as humans consume food that is quote unquote fresh but there are plenty of creatures out there that eat things raw the rawest things in the world they don't cook they don't bring it back to the den well, isn't that like the paleo them. diet or mm-hmm. you know like which is kind of ridiculous in and of itself and it amazes me for example i have no idea how these animals go about without getting terribly ill i imagine either they have amazing immune systems or just systems to ward off infection yeah. but they're eating raw meat that's been exposed to the open air which none of us as people would willingly do because we know what happens as a result and then i think of other systems that we don't share with animals dogs for example they pant instead of sweating they have incredible senses of sight and incredible senses of smell someone that wrote into us talked about how dogs have 220 million scent receptors whereas we only have five one question that i would ask you to sort of direct the conversation a bit caroline in what ways do you think we as humans have an accurate perception of life or even the planet earth as a host for life because as is obviously very clear we don't perceive everything our vision for example is limited on the spectrum of visible light scent is obviously limited our taste buds i imagine are limited and of course we're pretty large we can't get in very small spaces and also we can't experience very large things because of our size we're not like blue whales but we're also not like the smallest of insects yeah i think humans are very narrow-minded and are pretty short-sighted both literally and kind of in the abstract (laughs) in that way i mean we can talk about global warming we see that life in the globe itself is changing around us due to climate change and we're not really doing that much about it there's certain sustainable energy reforms that are trying to be put in place and yet still a huge amount of our budget is going towards military endeavors so i don't think we can look at life and we can look at the world and really look at it beyond a few years down the road i mean all these plans that are put out are like five to ten year plans Mm -hmm. or politicians say we need to make a future for our children or whatever but i don't think we're perceiving life as this thing that should go on i don't know what do you think i hear you well i think it's interesting you bring up politicians alone the fact that we are organisms that believe in political structures when you really think about it is interesting that we think we shouldn't all be individuals governing ourselves we collectively as a society would prefer to have organized systems of trade and other things i think that's really interesting to think about the fact that we as a species do that and have evolved systems to enforce that like currency like mm-hmm. money is an abstract isn't it absolutely but it's not you know like and money also ties into trade which makes yeah. me think back to possessions and i'm going to stop just listing abstract ideas here i was on a walk with a friend the other night and she and i were talking and i was asking how her life was going and she said that three of her pairs of shoes had been ruined by her friend's dog and my first thought was i'm sorry that those shoes were ruined i'm sure that cost a lot of money but my second thought was those are possessions you are relatively fine and i think this dog who maybe doesn't understand our human rules which are decidedly arbitrary did what felt natural to him and maybe got an immense amount of pleasure from it (laughs) exactly and i just it's so interesting that we as people rely so much on possessions i think it's such an american construct though i I like a western american construct that's totally valid i mean what dave suggs my advisor always says from his studies in botswana he says that the people there always say you people in the west you like things 
there is a, a cultivated idea associated with success that is totally material in the U.S. Right. and in the West. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so it's interesting. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong. Obviously, I'm guilty of it. I'm a Westerner. Yeah, and absolutely. I have a computer. I'm using the computer right now to edit the audio and to put audio of the podcast up alone. Obviously, I'm wearing clothes that go beyond simply keeping me clothed and also died that you probably color. didn't wear yesterday exactly we had outfits know. it's and i know you're right that that is a western thing in a lot of ways to seek possessions but i do think as people we've been keeping things with us for millennia obviously certain countries certain nations keep more things or yeah. hoard more things than others the exchange but of it is maybe different exactly how you obtain it mm-hmm. and i just think it's so fascinating but i would also say as I encouraged all of you to look around earlier and check out life, one, I think we're disconnected from a lot of it. And I get why people wouldn't relate to a tree or to blades of grass because we are very different. But at the same time, when you look around and take stock of what life is around you, there are people everywhere. And I feel like, again, in a very Western context, we're more and more divided from one another, which is Mm -hmm. ridiculous. You don't have to be a tree hugger. You don't have to be an animal lover necessarily to see what I'm talking about, but you share 99.999% of the same DNA as all the people around you or something thereabouts. Obviously not quite that number, but you're so similar with them. You could have children with the people around you because you share that species. And I feel like we as people don't stop and appreciate that very frequently. And don't get me wrong, we don't have to, but every once in a while, well, it's very individualistic. I mean, we look at ourselves and we say, and we've been told this, we've, it's been kind of ingrained into us. We are people and we are individual humans and we have a say and a voice and an individual spirit and soul and mm-hmm. we are special and different. And you know, this goes back to our... You're absolutely <laughs> right. I just, I think it's funny that in the way you described all of that, you're using plural terms like people and we, mm-hmm. because it is, it's a yeah. larger system. I, I'm not trying to trick you or no, no, no. It's, but call yeah. you out on anything. It's so interesting to me. And don't get me wrong again, to be completely candid here, there are plenty of times where I feel divided from people or I'm doing my own isolationist or solitary action or activity and I'm not interacting with other people. Part of me wonders if that is culture and if we've just sort of created systems that don't really let us interact Yeah, that much, the construction but. of the introvert, extrovert, you know. Right. But I'm, I'm an introvert. I subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, like, and that's valid. That alone in nature, do you think there are that many classifications of things? I think we as people classify mm-hmm. so much. We need to control everything. Exactly. And we have fields of study for psychology and astronomy and biology, as we've exactly. already mentioned a lot. And I think for me, like, perhaps why I do find myself in awe of nature in so many ways and so respecting and inspired by nature is partially because I don't understand it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, I haven't chosen to classify it and try to control it in a way. And that way I kind of just stand back and I'm like, it's a sensation rather than a desire to want to put it in my pocket and try to control it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I completely understand that. One thing I then think about when talking to you about classification are the Garden Poems by Andrew Marvell. He was a 17th century poet, and I will link to some of these again, as always, in our episode description on the website. But he talked about the distinction between human beings who make gardens and try and tend to nature and control it and put it in a box and develop it in their own way, breeding flowers to get a very specific type of flower, containing things so they look aesthetically pleasing, and then people who just let nature be. And I think in his poems about a mower who is nameless, the speaker in the poem talks about 
how futile it feels to keep mowing the grass and it keeps growing back. And I think if the audience that's listening takes away nothing else from this conversation, just the fact that life is so persistent that nature sometimes, the universe, the fact that heat is constantly draining away from the planet and that life itself and Earth's conditions as well as others in various planets and other galaxies can be so hostile, life clings on with this awe-inspiring force, just the places that other organisms can survive, and humans alone, the amount of perseverance that people show in the face of dying or simply giving in to those natural forces. I mean, what do you think? I feel like I've sort of demonstrated that for me, like, nature is sort of indescribably beautiful. Mm -hmm. And actually, as you were saying that, I was once more taken by nature itself because the sun keeps going behind the clouds and Mm -hmm. it changes the light in the room. And now, like, it's coming up again in your light and your face just looks totally different. Right. And then it's going to go behind a cloud again, as it's doing right now, and it's dark. And little things that I wouldn't have ever noticed, or like, or maybe noticed, but it, I wouldn't have thought anything of it, are really present all around us right. all the time. And yet we persist. We're here throughout it, and we sometimes don't even acknowledge it. I don't know. The first time that happened, the room got so dark that I was kind of like, oh my goodness, what's I'm, going on? <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up things like the sun and the clouds, because I talked to some of the people that were kind enough to write some things and I asked them would you consider things like the sun alive and a lot of them were like well of course not no it's it's not an organism and I was like okay I get that but it makes life exactly it's essential for us to maybe blow the minds of some of the people listening out there there are bacteria (laughs) called lithotrophs I believe and I'll put a link to this if I'm correct that can digest certain minerals and rock and stay alive. They can literally eat rocks, to put it simply. And that's That's amazing to me. They don't don't need to eat organic matter. They can just digest rocks. That's amazing. And we as humans can't really do that. We have to eat other organisms, obviously. Then there are vultures and things that eat long dead organisms. But there are cultures out there, and understandably so, who do think the sun and other things like that are alive and have spirits. And it sort of saddens me when science, I think often Western science, comes in and says, well, I can prove that that's not true. And maybe you're right that clouds and other things that don't have organic drives aren't quote unquote alive, or but like, they're part of life. Or it's like, I feel like science is viewed as this advanced up on this pedestal type thing in Western culture. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we are giving, we are spreading science to those that are are more primitive or, or lacking something. Or that seen we as have. primitive. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Exactly. And I think that alone is really interesting that we as humans, not only with other species, but within our own, try and find classifications of things. It's constantly a desire to separate Mm -hmm. rather than to conjoin. And I'm sure there will be a lot of skeptics out there listening who say, well, Kip, it's really easy to talk about how great it is to all get along, but we are not so different. And I think at the end of the day, people who want to believe that we are, are uncomfortable with difference. And that's their right, and that has probably been a result of their environment and other stimuli or other things that have happened in their lives that have caused them to feel that way. But to bridge to some of the things that people sent us, because those who wrote to us that we will thank at the end of the episode wrote some really wonderful things. Really wonderful things. Two of the people that are biology majors talked to me about how absolutely absurd it was that I was asking this. One begins, the magnitude of this question is almost unfathomable. No, I think it might be unfathomable. Imagine you had to describe what the color green is to a blind man. It's impossible. It can't be done. To understand green, you have to be able to see and see green. To understand life, you have to be alive and you have to be able to see all life. 
to understand in the first place you have to be alive and another person said trying to define life can be a daunting task no set definition has been determined since the word itself has multiple components that make up a living thing therefore existing definitions prove to be abstract or vague some might describe life as a self-sustaining entity others describe things that are alive to be capable of darwinian evolution children might describe something that is alive as something that moves and i think this person gets at a lot of really interesting ideas that life itself is vague but at the same time very inclusive in a lot of ways and one of the things that was written were the characteristics that many scientists or biologists have agreed upon one is the ability to maintain homeostasis which is sort of a set degree of variables that stay within a small range of variability the idea of an organism being made up of cells or even a single cell the idea that life has to reproduce which i think is interesting the idea that organisms or living things have to grow to respond to stimuli that they have metabolisms and that they have to adapt which i think is especially interesting because there are certain computer programs that frankly adapt but we wouldn't call them alive because they don't have certain other characteristics. So I think one of my favorite things about life, perhaps, is how the things that people create sort of take on a life of their own in some way. And I'd be curious, were there any things that you read that you want to talk about at this point? For me, I guess life is so much more associated with emotion. It's visceral. It's a lot more associated with how I'm feeling and how I take on the day. And some days are good, and this is kind of maybe the emotionally damaging or self-damaging part of it, because I do really try to feel what I'm feeling, and, you know, some people aren't like that. So one person wrote, and I think I'm just going to read this whole last paragraph. Go for it. I, I think I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I, and I really think it's beautiful. There's a list in my notebook of things that I want people to know. Here's the one I think is most important. I have a mental illness, and I'm probably different from you. I want to know what it's like to be emotionally normal. More than anything in life, I want to be okay. I want to be okay enough to get through my life. Sometimes I feel like I can't navigate a supermarket. Sometimes it makes me sad that I have to decide what to eat for lunch. Sometimes life is too big and has no handholds. You might return to your room at night and read a book that's waiting there and probably love it, but that won't be enough to make you entirely happy. You might think about dream stars up in the sky, and there might be moments when you catch yourself surprised at how much muscle there is under your skin, muscles long and giving up hard like the side of a suitcase. You might move to Brazil and feel more okay there. How do you figure out the life you want to have? How do you step into it? And this speaks to me in so many ways, because I am happy a lot of the time, but sometimes I'm sad and sometimes I'm mad. And I think for me, that's life like on a day-to-day -day basis. Actually, I saw a play recently here at Kenya that some of my friends were in. It was called Dryland. And it kind of revolved around these two girls on a swim team and one was pregnant and needed the other girl, her friend, to give her an abortion. And that's kind of what the play revolved around. And there was this one line in the play where the pregnant girl's friend was telling this story about the old school that she'd come from. And it made me tear up so the line was that she'd moved from her old school in tampa to get away from her coach or at least her parents had made her do that and her friend was like oh what was he like and she was like oh he was awesome you know he'd make me swim a gazillion laps and you know make me keep going and one time on a flip turn i cracked my head and he made me keep going and when i got out of the pool he came up to me and he said that was amazing you're amazing like you're a star and she said that was amazing but in some ways he'd make me feel too alive hmm. and you know I, I think there are people for me that That's make me feel too alive in a way that can be self-damaging but in a way, I, that's what I 
crave. I want to feel everything I can feel. And one person submitted a poem and he bolded a section of it that says, for some reason we like to see days pass, even though most of us claim we don't want to reach our last one for a long time. We examine each day before us with barely a glance and say, no, this isn't one I've been looking for, and wait in a bored sort of way for the next when we are convinced our lives will start for real. This speaks to me in a lot of ways because I don't think I always have that carpe diem. Some Saturdays I want to sit in my bed all day and it's a beautiful day outside, but I just want to sit in my bed because I don't feel up to it. That's not my day. There's this struggle I feel a lot of the time between life being short and life being long because sometimes my emotions encompass me or get me down or maybe get me really up but in those times sometimes I either need to be like life is short you need to go outside you need to feel this tree you need to be with the people you love and care about and you'll feed off them and that's what a lot of the time happens but then there are some days where you're feeling too alive maybe and life is long and it's okay and you can take this day and this doesn't have to be your day I don't know how you feel about that I totally agree with everything you're saying and I think it was very beautifully said and I think it's interesting you brought up emotions and feeling too much or feeling sad, happy, angry, whatever. One of the people who wrote to us talked about how the brain developed and at around 500 million years ago, reptiles were actually the first animals to show some sort of brain structure and so they developed basic functions like controlling a heartbeat, breathing, motor functions and then around 250 million years ago, the limbic system, which is responsible for long-term memory and emotion, and then later the cerebrum was formed, which controls higher thinking and decision-making and judgment and emotion regulation. And I just think it's just so fascinating to think of all of these things which have happened out of our control. We haven't chosen any of these things necessarily. It's more that nature has preferred some of these characteristics and that we've evolved as a result, but memories alone fascinate me. I think the idea that there are so many people in our lives that we've met that frankly have impacted us, have changed our lives in one way or another, whether we're aware of it or not, is just amazing to me. Again, if you'll allow me to go on another brief tangent, I'll try and keep it brief. No, don't. It's fine. The connections alone in life are always something that I'm really amazed by. And I would challenge anyone listening to think about all the people that you know, or even think about five people that you know, and then think about all of the people that they know. And then for that third tier, all of the people that they have ever met or talked to even briefly. And without too many exponents going down that chain, I think you would very quickly encompass all of the people on the planet. Maybe we don't interact with these people daily. Maybe we only met them once in a diner, but people are connected to things. And I think that's fascinating because we're only one species and we're also connected to every other species in some way or another. I also think of the circumstantial nature of it all. I mean, I have best friends and most of them are on this campus. Isn't that kind of random? Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, we're all meant to be at Kenyan or whatever. But at the same time, I feel like I could go anywhere really in that same vein and have people I'm really close to and connect in that same way. Of course. Because of circumstance. We're on a small campus, which is frankly on a small planet that's in a galaxy, which is again in a broader universe. And of course, scientists haven't observed all of the known universe because it's just so big. One of the crazy things about life is that I personally believe, given all the circumstances and probabilities, that life on Earth 
is not the only form of life. No, and actually I saw something the other day that was like someone from NASA recently, it was in the news, said that by 2025 we're going to find other forms of life or predicted that. And obviously it's not a sure thing and we might get to 2025 and nothing will turn up. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that in our lifetime we may discover a whole other race of living life i mean and to maybe bridge another connection to another planet or universe that i think for most humans is like a crazy idea an amazing idea right it definitely would be for a lot of people i personally would be shocked and really amazed in a great way if we found life on other planets i know there are certain elements that make up living organisms or most living organisms on earth being carbon oxygen i think phosphorus and several others, and there are organisms out there that I think we've discovered in certain poisonous lakes on Earth that have a slightly different set of six. It's not the same six elements that we need to survive. And I think that's crazy. There are probably planets out there that don't contain the same elements, or at least in the same proportions as Earth. And if they contain life, how different it must be. And I also think it's fascinating to think about our planet again. There's something deep, deep, deep in the ocean that no one's ever seen. Plenty of things, frankly. And we think of those things as ugly or whatever because of our human sense of what beauty is. But terrifying. (laughs) Exactly. And I think they would be on a visual level, but in the sense that something survived that long or species have survived that long. Without light. (laughs) Exactly. And under tremendous water pressure and other crazy circumstances. In isolation. Exactly. Probably not necessarily, but But by our terms, yeah. Absolutely. And we think of how lonely we can get sometimes on packed city streets or in cities of millions of people. And there are species down at the bottom of the ocean that are quite alone. And just the diversity of how they look, given that they didn't have light, or even species that exist on the planet that produce light. There are things that glow in the dark, like jellyfish or obviously the commonly known firefly. It's just amazing. And these are all living things. I can't get over it. And I'm sorry if people are annoyed by how giddy I sound, but (laughs) it's life. It's everywhere. And it's so fascinating. Our ability to study it is really amazing. But I hope people, especially in biological fields, but also outside, take time to just appreciate it. You don't have to think that everything's pretty. Certainly there are eels and other animals in the world. I'm still thinking about the ocean that are scary looking or whatever, given our standards of what it means to be scary. But the fact that life has proliferated that far, and to take it back to people, and Caroline, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. In a human being alone, most of our cells, I believe, are not our own. They come from bacteria or other things that are living inside of us and helping us work. Obviously, we have DNA from both of our parents, but that alone is interesting. We get the mitochondria, the things that make energy essentially in our cells, which is, again, a gross simplification, they come from the maternal side of the gene. Mm -hmm. And obviously, fathers also contribute. And even in genes alone, the tremendous variation that occurs in human beings, you could have a blue-eyed child or a brown-eyed child. They can have hair of different types. And it's just amazing. In our species alone, we vary so much. And I think it's really cool. Obviously, it's been the result of a lot of conflict in human history, skin Mm -hmm. color, which is really just pigment different. Social construct, yeah. Social construct, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just based on this differentiation of pigment is really crazy in a lot of ways, in a lot of negative ways, but it's just so mind-boggling to think of all the things that have happened in life, and I'm just always blown away by it. So, Caroline, one of the things that was written to us, the one of the opening paragraphs from one of our authors, says, Earth formed approximately 4.5 billion years ago. It was a melting pot, literally, of active volcanoes, meteors, and poisonous gases. 
The daily attack from asteroids and icy comets lasted for 0.3 billion years. Due to Earth's proximity to the sun, comets that crashed into the Earth's surface melted into water. This water would become the primordial source for the evolution of life on Earth. Because of thermal vents, the heated water could move with convection currents, and these convection currents were the catalyst for the formation of complex biological molecules. They mixed various chemicals that ultimately formed RNA and protein. And of course, from RNA and protein, prokaryotes ultimately evolved, and these are single-celled <laughs> organisms. And then, of course, single-celled organisms eventually combined to form multicellular organisms, and that alone, which has led to us now, mm -hmm. as I said, maybe I'm miscounting, but trillions of cells, if yeah. not billions at least, in the human body. I think trillions. And I how think there they, has to be. Yeah, and how they all work together, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. And then I apologize for using such similar language to describe all of these things, but one of the best things about life, I think, that is evident in the way humans study it is that there's so many different facets. There are marine biologists who only study aqueous life, and I think perhaps life in the ocean mostly, and they're satisfied. They have so mm -hmm. much to study because of how much goes on in those environments, and I think it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and then you think about humans and how there are a vast number of people all over the world different religious groups, different cultures who view life in so many different ways, who have a doctrine, a philosophy, a constructed culture that makes them view life and where they go with that life in certain ways. And it's amazing that while we are all these multicellular organisms, at the same time, we're so emotionally, philosophically different. We have this liberty of thought that is kind of amazing in and of itself. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the human ability for introspection and thought in general is something that's really fascinating. To my knowledge, a lot of animals work off of instinct and just the need for survival. You talked earlier about being happy and sad. I think most creatures that maybe don't have emotional capacities just look for food, look for sources of energy, and then eventually somewhere to rest or just stay safe from maybe predators. And I think one thing that always fascinates me and frankly saddens me on some level is that human life considers itself so superior mm -hmm. simply because we have all these faculties and don't get me wrong i think a lot of our faculties and capacities are great i think the fact that hamlet was written and that people can travel faster than the speed of sound and leave the planet's atmosphere these are all amazing things but at the same time human beings suffer from a lot of things and so i don't want to deny that obviously humans suffer from war and mental illness exactly. and disease. And I talk about having good days and bad days, but the bottom line is there are some people in the world who live poorly right. and live badly, and mm -hmm. that is their reality, their everyday reality. And suffering is absolutely a part of it, and I don't want to sound downcast, but I think it's important to acknowledge, especially as someone who's spent the past 40 minutes sort of gushing about how great life is. It certainly is, in my opinion, mm -hmm. but I think that needs to be taken in consideration and in contrast to some of the problems that frankly can be solved, I think, and some of the problems which are just a part of life. Being hungry, hopefully not to the point of starvation, is a condition. But that exists. Exactly. I mean... And I think most animals daily are hungry. That's why they're searching for food. We as humans perhaps suffer from overpopulation because of how smart we've gotten. I just think some of the problems that we suffer are self-inflicted. You talked earlier about being emotionally self-destructive. I think everyone has a degree of that and we're strange creatures for it. But I wouldn't give up being emotionally self-destructive, whereas I feel like, I mean, we have these abstract constructs of nations and some are dependent on others. We have this construct of nation states and some nations are more dependent on others. And while well, you may say that there's this idea of overpopulation and 
those people need to stop having more children so that in the grand scheme of things, they have more food to feed those mouths that they already have. I mean, having children is part of someone's wealth or someone's livelihood. And in that way, those nations that are dependent on other nations are depriving the dependent nations of resources that they need that if that construct didn't exist, they may be able to sustain themselves and have whatever culture or population they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an interconnected dependency that in a lot of ways we've created and caused a lot of suffering because of it, I think. Absolutely. Life is a struggle in a lot of ways. Ideally, on those good days that you and I talked about, whether you're a human being or an amphibious creature out there, or of course, any of the other millions of forms of life. A (laughs) frog! Exactly. (laughs) Life is about resisting those forces against you, surviving, and of course, for things that can emotionally process enjoying that survival and making the most of the time that you have. But It is hard, and as I said earlier, life is persistent. That's one of my favorite things about it, that all forms of life know how to resist their environments to Mm -hmm. survive within them. And it is such a luxury, I think, that we can talk about life in terms of, well, at least for me, like how I'm feeling or emotions and, and sensations, and you can talk about it in terms of, oh, like the centipede and how amazing, and that we don't think of life in terms of survival in a lot of ways. I think that's a privilege. Right. So... As we conclude here, there are a few things to say. One, I'd like to thank all of you for listening this long. I know this was a longer episode, but it was a bit of a broad topic. And remember that next time we are going to be talking about death, and we will have a lot to say on that as well. And of course, we want to thank the people who wrote in and shared with us, and we will leave these as anonymous attachments on this episode if you would like to read what they wrote. So we would like to thank Emily Bulick sullivan Naomi Ali, Will Quam. Patrick Mershon, Hayden Fowler, and Sarah Carminati. And of course, we really appreciate those contributions a lot. And if any of you out there want to write us a comment on our episode, please feel free to do so. You can also tweet at us at Stride and Saunter. You can check out our Facebook account, which is also Stride and Saunter. You can email us, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And of course, we always encourage you to check out our website, strideandsaunter.com. And if you do have any thoughts yourself and would like to respond to our question, what is life to you, please email us those responses and maybe we'll have a follow-up episode. Yeah, I'd be really happy to do that. And of course, as always, we thank you all for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.